we're thinking about what I'm calling working out salvation, to use Paul's phrase in Philippians chapter 2. And I was trying to give you a kind of list as to the things that are involved in that. Biggest one I have left out. The biggest one is that the very heart of working out our salvation is to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I was, I said, I think that there were five or six things I wanted to mention. One was continuing in the things that were put into us when we were saved. We're sanctified by God's word. We maintain fellowship with people. We find our calling. I could have said something, and I might, I might come back to it. I could have said something about spiritual warfare, the kind of thing that you have in the end of Ephesians, where Paul is, is listing all these great things, and then he says, finally, there's one, there's one more thing he's got to, to cover before he stops, and he begins to talk about the way in which we fight Satan and put on the whole armor of God. I could have said something about that, and I might come back to it. And I would say also, one of the great secrets to, to, be, to, be, to try to be very practical is, is to maintain balance. I think very often what happens when we are seeking to, to work out our salvation and live the Christian life is that, is that we, we get unbalanced. We, we specialize in something too heavily. I've mentioned the, um, the mystics and, and the things that uh, went on among the, the Catholic monks of medieval times. And I would think this happened to them. Many of them, many of them were good people. This lady I've mentioned, Hildegard, I'm sure she was a good lady, but uh, when you start uh, focusing on one thing only, it might be doctrine. You get guys with theologians, but that's all they are. They're just theologians, and they, they're nothing else. They're all they're like tadpoles. They're all head and no body. They're just intellectual guys. And then you get the monks and the mystics. They just want experiences. There's this lady, Hildegard, reckons she was having visions and dreams when she was about three years old. Maybe she was, but um, some of them are a bit weird. Some of them are visions of Mary. This whole thing's a bit dubious. And then you get other people who, they want to be practical. They want to go around doing things. And uh, they're activists. They're busy, 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 doing all sorts of things for the Lord. But uh, the danger is that, that we become imbalanced. You can become imbalanced in doctrine. You can become imbalanced in seeking spiritual experiences. And that's happening a lot these days. You can become imbalanced in, in that you don't give time for thinking at all. You're dashing around just doing things all the time. You have to maintain a kind of balance where you, you've got time for, for God's word, You've got time to pray. You've got time for people where you, you, you've got certain activities and things. You, you mix your life and keep it a, a balanced life. And even ordinary society, Christians who, you get Christians who are so religious that you feel like saying to them, you ought to go and watch some movie somewhere or something just to become human. They're, they're, they're so sort of religious. I remember a, a woman once um, coming to see me in Nairobi, and she had a lot of problems and uh, was very burdened. She was a nurse in a missionary hospital. And I said to her, do you have a swimming costume? And she said, no. And I said, all right, well, my wife and I are going to give you one. And uh, I'm going to buy you a ticket for swimming all day at Serena Hotel, the most luxurious, most luxurious hotel in Nairobi. And at the end of the day, you'll be all right. And she did. I bought her a swimming ticket, and uh, she spent the whole day lazing by the pool. At the end of one day, all of her problems were gone. And for years afterwards, every time she saw me, every time she came back to Nairobi, she would say, oh, that day, you saved my life, you rescued me. But you see, I could just see that she was physically so exhausted. When you're absolutely, totally physically exhausted, you're going to start having spiritual problems. She was, she was a nurse, and there was no doctor in the hospital. She was really running the whole hospital all on her, all on her own, never getting any sleep. Sometimes you, you, you need to relax a bit. You need to live a balanced life. Don't, don't be so religious that, that uh, you, you become inhuman. Sometimes you need the ordinary things of life. Christians should have a hobby, something where they, where they uh, as were vary the style of their life. So both spiritually and even secularly, 
you need a kind of balanced life. Don't, don't, be, don't be a specialist in some small section of the Christian life where you only pray or where you only study theology or where you only are busy, busy, busy in some sort of spiritual activity. Have a balanced life because uh, you'll be in trouble if you don't. But the, the, the biggest thing of all these uh, things I wanted to say to you has to do with fellowship with the Lord. And it's, that, it's in that connection that I come back again to the passage that I read to you in, in 1 John. And uh, this was the problem in, in the situation where John was. John was in Ephesus. The Apostle John, he was an old man. He was in the Ephesus, the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. And there had been a false teaching there. Some, some heretics had come in, and they had denied the gospel. They had denied that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. You, you, can, you can see easily, I think, who they are. They are Platonists. And uh, if you know anything about Greek philosophy, you will know that Greek philosophy hated the body. The, the idea of Plato and the Greek philosophers was that anything physical or material was somehow wicked. And uh, what was good is spirit, the, the, some, something which exists, but it's not material. And that was typical of Plato and the, the Greek philosophers. And it was the dominant philosophy in the first century. And sometimes it came into the church. And so sometimes in the church, people hated the body. And that got them into problems because the Son of God took flesh. The Word became flesh. Jesus became a man. But if you had the idea that, that, that anything physical or body or anything physical is evil, then you had problems with Jesus becoming a man because he became physical. And you had problems with the resurrection. The, the, the Greeks didn't like resurrection. They didn't want to be raised from the dead. They wanted to be spirits floating around in space. Sometimes the Christian church has been more platonic than Christian. You ever read Plato's dialogue called the Dialogue with Phaedo, P-H-P-H, A-E-D-O. If you ever read the dialogue with Phaedo, where Socrates is uh, about to commit suicide compulsorily, he's been condemned to death by the Athenian state, and um, he's being compelled to commit suicide, and so he he's discussing what it's going to be like when he dies, and and, and uh, Plato and Socrates and all these friends are, are are talking about what happens when you die. And if you ever read, if you ever read. Uh, the dialogue was with Fido, you might think how Christian it is. They're talking about going to heaven and uh, there's life after death and you're right, he'll be happy in the heavenly glory. And you're reading all this book, you're reading this book, it's only about 60 pages, you can read it quite easily. And you, you will think, well, maybe this man was saved, maybe this, maybe this is a Christian book. But actually, it's not a Christian book at all. And the reason why, reading Plato, you sometimes think you're reading a Christian book, is not because Plato is a Christian, but because so many Christians are Platonists. And, and really, this idea that when you die, you go to heaven, and your soul carries on, is more like Plato than the Bible. The Bible's ultimate hope is, is not heaven. The Bible's ultimate hope is the resurrection, the resurrection of the body. The final hope is that we're given a, a body. Our body is raised immortal. Plato wouldn't have liked that. He didn't want to be ra- have his body to be raised. He regarded the body as a kind of prison that you escape from. And so these guys did not like anything physical. And that came into the Christian church. A lot of early Christians were Platonists. Augustine was a very strong Platonist. When you read the earliest things that Augustine ever wrote, he doesn't quote the Bible at all. He's arguing like a Platonist philosopher. It's all he's doing, and, uh, and so on. And when you read, you remember the time when Paul preached to Greek philosophers? Remember the occasion in Acts 17, when in Mars Hill or Areopagus, um, he was given the chance to preach to them, and he preached to them, and they listened very politely until... He got to the point where he mentioned the resurrection. And, and it says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 34, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, yeah, we, we'll hear you some, some other time about this. When, when Paul mentioned the resurrection, at that point they began to laugh and say, no, 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 we can't believe that. And there never was a church in Athens. Paul did not found a church in Athens. He founded a church in all these cities around Athens, but not in Athens itself. He preached the resurrection there. And they, they didn't want to know about the resurrection. 
Well, what happened in Ephesus is that false teachers came in denying that Jesus was the Son of God come in the flesh. And this was very popular that, uh, that uh, the body is bad. It's, it's still around. It's the reason why the Pope doesn't get married. If you ever ask why Roman Catholic priests don't get married, where's that come from? Not in the Bible, is it? Where's it come from? Well, it comes from the idea that, that marriage is too physical. It's got, it's got physical pleasures in it. And uh, the early Christians were often against marriage. And uh, the early Christians found it difficult to believe that Jesus had brothers. You know, you could be almost persecuted in the early church. Other Christians would almost persecute you if you said that Jesus' brothers really were the children of Mary. And, and even today, they talk about the Virgin Mary. But the Bible talks about Jesus' brothers. It says that Mary did not know Joseph until Jesus was born, which rather implies she did afterwards. But they, they don't like anything sexual or, or having, Jesus having brothers, Mary having babies. It's terribly, terribly physical to have babies. They, they don't like things like that. And so the idea of the, of the virginity of Mary who never gets married and the Pope mustn't get married and the clergy mustn't get married, this is all coming from, from Platonism, this, this negativism towards anything physical. It's still, it's still in the churches and, uh, and so on. So in Ephesus, these guys came in, and they, they were very influential. They argued very powerfully, and it was a very popular idea. And Christians are always a bit inclined to be impressed with current ideas. It's still true. We're still very impressed about democracy and, uh, and this, that, and the other. We, Christians sometimes are pressurized to be politically correct and all the rest of it, and we, we sort of go along with the current views. Christians are always inclined to go along with current views. They think, well, yeah, maybe it's right. And you start listening to the, the dominant philosophy around you. And that happened in Ephesus. They began to say, well, maybe these guys are right. Maybe, maybe, maybe G the, the Christ and Jesus are different people. Jesus was a man. The Christ is somebody else. They were beginning to listen. And when they began to listen, it ruined the church. Everybody loses their joy. Everybody loses their assurance. They stop loving each other. They start quarreling. The whole church is damaged by these people coming in. And John stands firm and a few others stand firm. And finally, the, the heretics leave. It says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, they left us. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it, be, it, it might become plain that they are not, they are all not of us. These false teachers left. But they, they damaged the church. They left a the problem behind the church was full of doubts and difficulties, and they were uncertain. And especially, they had lost fellowship with the Lord. If you start believing a false gospel, I don't mean if you make some little mistake, but if you start, if you start some believe, believing some major heresy, you start listening to some Jehovah's Witness, and you think, well, yeah, maybe he is right, and he, you can't sort of argue, answer him, and you start believing it, you will find that you lose fellowship with the Lord. You find you can't pray. You find you don't get on with Christians. You're not bothered about Christians because they're embarrassing you. They're believing what, what you're, you're doubting. And so it damages fellowship with the Lord. It damages fellowship with other people. It damages your assurance. It damages your obedience. You, you can't listen to some major heresy. I'm not talking about little differences of opinion. I'm talking about big, major heresies. You can't dabble with some major false teaching without it affecting your relationship with the Lord and the fellowship you have with other Christians and so on. So that's what's happened in Ephesus. So John writes to them. And what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to restore them. The heretics have gone. The false teachers have left. But they have left a lot of damage behind. And the Christians are not really in fellowship and they're wondering whether John's message really is true and they've lost their joy and so on. So John writes to them. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, We're writing these things that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And we are writing these things that our joy, or your joy, the, the manuscripts differ, that you are writing these things that joy may be complete. They've lost their joy, they've lost their fellowship, they're not, they're not really listening very much to the apostolic message, and they're in trouble. So John writes to help them to get back into fellowship. And that's why I choose these verses and this passage, because the major part of 
working out our salvation is living in fellowship with God. Uh, I've left it till last, not because it's the least important, but because it's the most important. This is the supreme thing. We are to live a life of fellowship with the Lord. So that's the background of this letter. There was false teaching. They were Platonists coming into the fellowship, and they were, they were teaching that Jesus was not a man. He was disguised as a man. He looked like a man. You saw Jesus, and well, he's a man. But actually, he's not, he's not a man at all. He's God in disguise. He's not taken flesh. He's not a human being. The dying upon the cross is not important. The resurrection, that's not important. He's just a kind of spirit. He's the Christ, but he's the Savior, but he's not Jesus. He's not the man. Well, that sort of stuff is, is nonsense and, and major heresy, and it almost destroyed the church. So John is writing to help them, and he's writing to help them come back to fellowship and joy and obedience and love and so on. The passage I read to you, 1 John chapter 5, read to you in the last session, 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 into chapter 2 verse 2, is I think the heart of the matter. In that paragraph, which goes from 1.5 to 2.2, he is telling us how to get into, how to restore and get and stay into fellowship with the Lord. This is the message. God is light. If we say we are having fellowship, when we're walking in the dark, no, we're not. And I'm writing to help you, and if we confess our sins, you have fellowship. He's telling them how to have fellowship with the Lord. Now, I want to say something about how to interpret 1 John. Over the, the course of uh, history, 1 John has been interpreted in a number of different ways, and I, I want to mention three of them. There are three ways in which you could take this letter. When you're reading a book of the Bible, it's always good to try and ask the question, what's the whole thing all about? And if you go wrong at that point, you're likely to misread a letter. This is true of any book. You, you, you uh, read a book, you always ought to see what it's trying to do. If you're trying to read it and you're trying to get something out of it which the, the writer's not trying to do, you'll, you'll not enjoy it. I remember many years ago reading a biography of Florence Nightingale, the famous founder of the nursing profession. And I've always, I've always had an admiration for Florence Nightingale. She was the most amazing lady. And uh, talking about gifts in the last session, I should have mentioned Florence Nightingale. If ever there was a lady who was born with a gift, it was Florence Nightingale. She was a nurse when there was no such thing as being a nurse. I mean, she, when she was five years old, she would find some dog on the street that had damaged his leg, and she would take it home and bandage the dog's leg and, 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 and sort of treat it as though it's sick and make a sort of hospital for her dog, some wounded dog she found on the street. She would do that when she was five years old. When she had dollies, uh, she, she, would, she would pretend they were sick and sort of feed them and, and give them medicine. She was playing at being a nurse when she was five years old, and there was no such thing as a nursing profession. He was just born to be a nurse. And this is one of the things about gifts. You, you, you have a gift, it may show itself when you're very young. And uh, if ever there was a lady with a gift, it was her. And she was a brilliant, highly intellectual, most intelligent lady of Victorian Britain, I would think. He read a, he read a New Testament in Greek. She was highly educated when, at a time when women were not encouraged to be educated. So I've always been interested in her. And uh, one day I found a biography I hadn't read of her. And I read it, and I didn't like it. It was so boring. And I, I was reading this book, and uh, I thought, oh, I'm not going to get through this book. And after a while, I gave it up and, and, and abandoned even reading it. So I put it on the bookshelf and forgot all about it. About a year later, I um, thought, oh, no, I really ought to read this book. Let me have another go. So I came back to this book again about a year later. Only this time... And I started reading this novel for the second time, this uh, biography for the second time. I noticed the subtitle. The subtitle said, Florence Nightingale, The Story of a Remarkable Family. And I thought, oh, this book's not just writing about uh, Florence Nightingale, it's writing about her whole family. And then I realized it wasn't just writing about Florence Nightingale, it was writing about the situation of women in 19th century Britain and how people just couldn't do the kind of things that she did. 
the family kept on oppressing her, saying, why don't you get married? You know, you just want to be a nurse in the Crimea somewhere. The family was sort of persecuting her for not getting married. So the only thing that, that upper-class ladies did in the 19th century, you just found a nice guy to marry, finished. That's all you, all you did in life if you were some rich lady. And so the family virtually persecuted her. And so it wasn't just a kind of history of Florence Nightingale, it was a kind of history of social life for, for women in the 19th century. So I read it again. Only this time, I read it sort of looking for different things. And I loved it. It was the most illuminating book. I learned a lot. But you see, that you see, the reason why I didn't get it the first time, and I liked it the second time, was I hadn't quite seen what it was trying to do. If you, you pick up anything in Scripture or anywhere else for that matter, you better see what the guy's trying to do. If you're trying to read him for something he's not trying to do, you'll be struggling and not understanding, think, where's, where's this thing going? It's because you're, you're missing where the thing is going. Now, that's true of Florence Nightingale, but it's also true of 1 John, you, you, or any other book of the Bible. I think especially of Hebrews. If you think that Hebrews is all about falling away from salvation, you'll read the whole book of Hebrews astray. That's not what it's about at all. And the same with 1 John. What's 1 John all about? Well, there are three options, I think. At the moment, there are three big options. The idea has often been around that uh, 1 John is really trying to tell you whether you're saved or not. There's a very famous book written 100 years ago, by a man called Richard Law, I think his name was, L-A-W, um, called The Tests of Life. And it's a commentary on one John. And the, the idea is that John is really telling you how to find out whether you're really saved. You know that you have passed from death to life because you love the brethren, and uh, we know that we know him because we keep his commandments. So what, what John is really doing is trying to tell you how to, to know whether you're saved or not. And that was very popular among the Puritans. The Puritans loved that view of, uh, of 1 John, the 17th century Puritans. And they all, they all wrote about 1 John along those lines. And it's, it's, it's the major view, it's the majority view among commentators and preachers and so on. But 1 John is all about uh, finding out whether you're saved or not. But I believe that that's a total mistake. For a start, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, John assures them that they are saved. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Why should you read a book to, to, trying to help you decide whether you're saved or not if the writer dogmatically says you are saved? How, how, can, how can he be deciding whether you're saved if he dogmatically tells you that you are saved? I'm writing to you because you do know him. I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. You do know the Father. You know him who's from the beginning. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. How can that be helping people decide whether they're saved or not when it's so dogmatic that they are strong in God? It doesn't make sense. And in any case, does it ever work? Is there anybody here who knows they are saved because of they're so obedient that that's how they know they're saved? In which case, I tell you, you're a Pharisee. That's what the Pharisees did. I mean, the Pharisees said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm like other people. You know, that guy had assurance of salvation. You know, I fast and I, and I give tithes and I'm not like that guy over there, that tax collector. I'm not like him. He had assurance of salvation because of how good he was. But actually... He was just praying with himself, as, as Luke 18 says. And it's the other man, the other man who's not quoting his works, who just says, Lord, have mercy to me. It's the other man who goes back to his house justified by, justified rather than the other. No, no, you never get assurance of salvation by how good you are. If you, you tell me you get to, you know you're saved because of how good you are, well, you're in trouble. Are you, are you really good enough? You, you love people so much that you, you think, I must be saved because, because uh, look how I love, I love these Christians. Well, okay, there's something in this. I'll come back to it in a moment. But if you are basing your salvation on how good you are, you are in trouble because you're not good enough. You know, I, I must be saved because I'm so good. Well, are you good enough? If you base your salvation on your good works... Well, the great question is, are your good works good enough? Are you so holy that you think, well, I'm, I'm, I must be saved because how holy I am? No, no, that's justification by works. And, and if you get assurance in that way totally and completely, there's something in it, I'll come back to it in a moment, but uh, if you get your assurance of salvation that way, 
the question I will ask you is, well, are you really sure you're saved? And people and Puritans, I've quoted the Puritans, Puritans are notorious for doubting their salvation. You can get people on their deathbed who have been, who've been Puritan preachers all their lives, but when they come to die, they're not quite sure whether they're going to heaven or not. They, they, they've got trouble even when they're dying. Now, you, you build your salvation on how good you are on your good works. Will you ever have assurance of salvation? When you come to die, will you say, well, I know, I know I'm going to heaven because of how good I am. No, no, you don't get salvation that way. You don't get assurance that way. You can confirm your salvation. I, I agree with that. But um, you don't build your assurance of salvation on your good works. And, uh, and I don't think this is the right way to take one John. And if you do take it that way, you are likely to be in spiritual trouble. You're likely to be saying, well, you know, I don't think I love the brothers very much. Uh, am I really saved? You, you'll always be full of doubts because your, your holiness is not, is not strong enough to be, to be a foundation. You can't build your assurance of salvation on yourself. Don't build, build your assurance on how good you are because if you're not good enough, you're always going to be in trouble. And people, people who go that way, they, they never have assurance of salvation. I've always had an interest in the subject for many, many years. I've often preached about it, and I've, I've often had people come to me. I can think of a famous preacher. I won't tell you his name. Some of you would know him. I can think of a famous preacher. He came to me once, a South African man. He came to me once and said, all of my life I've wondered whether I'm really saved. It's because he held this kind of view of of 1 John and Hebrews 6, that you can be enlightened and taste of the heavenly gift and then you fall away. And uh, if, if, you, if, if you can be enlightened and taste of the heavenly gift and then you fall away, you never really were saved, how will you ever know whether you're saved? You'll always be in trouble. You'll always be examining yourself. And in certain circles of churches which hold this kind of view, you, you get people who are 80 years old and, and, and they've never in their lives been to the Lord's Supper. And you ask them, why don't you take part in the Lord's Supper? No, I don't feel worthy. I'm not sure whether I'm saved. They've been examining themselves all their lives, and they still don't know whether they're saved. No, no, this introspective way of handling Scripture is is very much in the Puritans. They were good guys, and I like the Puritans, but uh, they were too legalistic. Everybody who ever studies the Puritans will see it. If you read the Puritans too much, you are likely to end up doubting your salvation. Which is not true of Calvin. You can, if you read Calvin, John Calvin, you'll never doubt your salvation. You, if you read the, the 16th century guys, you won't doubt your salvation. But if you read the 17th century Calvinists, one, one century further on, when they've become more, more, more careful, more legalistic, more introspective, you'll find you end up wondering whether you're saved. And uh, people like that, they, they take one John in this way. But then, more recently, there's been another way of taking one John. And this is going around at the moment. I've not come across it much in UK. It's going around a lot in South Africa and certain other parts of the world. And it's only a question of time before it's here, if it's not here already. There are people who say, well, this letter, really, you you don't have to take too much notice of of these things that John is telling us to do because he's speaking to the Gnostics. Uh, You've heard people who say maybe that you don't have to confess your sins, you're under grace. You don't need to be going around confessing your sins, you're forgiven, you're under grace. And if you'll say, well, what about 1 John? 1 John says if if we confess our sins, they will answer, ah, yes, but that's about the Gnostics, these heretics. It's John saying if you confess your sins and believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. So these things are not really about us. They're really being addressed to the Gnostics. They're, they're, They're addressed to the heretics, the false teachers, the Platonists. And so they, they are sidestepping everything in one John. Uh, they, they don't really want to take any notice about the tests, the tests of, uh, of, of whatever it is. Uh, they don't want to be confessing their sins or anything like that because they feel, no, this is all, all to the Gnostics. It's, it's just telling these, these heretics how to get saved. And so they sidestep the teaching of one John by, by saying it's about somebody else. You should always be suspicious. If somebody has a way of scripture, a way of handling scripture, that means it's not relevant to you. If someone says, uh, this is just for the first century, all right, so you don't need to write to read it. Or this is just for the apostles, okay, you don't need to bother. Or no one talks in tongues except the first generation, okay, you you can throw 1 Corinthians 14 out of your Bible, you don't need it. Or uh, we're not under the law. All right, well, that's true, 
but don't push it so far that you, ne- you never need to read the Ten Commandments. If, if you find yourself uh, getting rid of a bit of the Bible, well, there's something a bit suspicious about that. And the particular people I've got in mind, they're getting rid of a lot of the Bible. If you say, well, well, David confesses his sins, he goes to the Lord, he writes Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, he's confessing his sins. Oh, oh that's, that's the Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord said, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Yeah, that's, that's before Pentecost. You don't need that. What about 1 John? Yeah, that's written to the Gnostics. What about James? That's written to, written to the Jews. So you end up saying, how much of the Bible are you letting me have? You've got rid of the Old Testament. You've got rid of the Gospels. You've got rid of the Lord's Prayer. You've got rid of Hebrews. You've got rid of James. You've got rid of 1 John. So how much of the Bible is left for me? If you find someone sort of getting rid of the Bible bit by bit because you mustn't read this bit because that's not for you and this bit's not for you and that's not for you and this is for the first century and that's for the Jews, you find someone handling the Bible like that, they don't leave much of the Bible left for you. Surely there's something suspicious about anybody who argues in a way that's getting rid of bits of the Bible and telling you why you don't need to read it or don't need to apply it to yourself. Oh no, that's a wrong way of handling Scripture. It's a wrong way of handling 1 John. And the word we in 1 John comes at least 50 times. And we and us and our come in at least 50% of the verses of 1 John. John is constantly saying we, 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 all the way through. This is the message that we have heard. If we say this, if we walk in the light, if we say we have no sin, if we confess our sins, if we say that we have not sinned, my, my little children are writing that you may not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate of the Father. He's not the, he's not the sacrifice for our sins only. You see, he's using the word we and us and our in every verse. 50% of the verses of 1 John have the word we or us or our. And that, that those verses, that, that phrase, we or us or our, all the way through 1 John, only means Christians or we apostles. Sometimes he means we, we apostles, we, we John and his friends. It only ever means the apostles, we John with his colleagues, or it means we Christians. It never means them. It never means those heretics, those false teachers, if they confess their sins, they can be saved. The word we never means them. Incidentally, when you read your Bible, pay attention to those pronouns, we and us and you and them. People often misread verses because they don't notice what, what is we, what is you, what is them. They do it a lot with, with um, <coughs> the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. He doesn't say, I will say unto you. It says, you enter the narrow gate. And those false teachers who are there, they're not even saved at all. And, and as you are trying to go through the narrow gate, they will come to you and try to get you in. And, but they don't even know God. They say, Lord, Lord, but they don't know me. I will say unto them, not I will say unto you, I will say unto them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Not I knew you once, but then you fell away. But I never knew you. Those people are not saved. They never were saved. They're totally false teachers. Don't use the word, don't always, don't get muddled up when you have words like we and you and them and us. Notice who's being referred to. Because sometimes it's talking about them and you apply it to yourself. That same thing in 2 Peter. Read, read 2 Peter. You'll have the same, the same sort of thing you'll find there. If, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world... They are entangled them again. The last state has become worse for them than the first. It would be better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. And, so, and on it goes about people falling away. But if you read 2 Peter, there's, there's a difference between you and they. You means the Christians. They means those who are listening to the false teachers. And if they hear about Jesus but won't listen to it, they are ending up in a worse situation than ever. Pay attention to the you's and the we's and the they's and follow who they are referring to as you go through Scripture. You find, you find you, you read certain passages with new eyes if you, if you keep your, your mind focused on the you and the we and the they. So, This letter is not written to Gnostics. This letter, when it says we, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we if we're false teachers. There's no false teachers around. They've left the church. They've left altogether. They're not there. 
So, what is 1 John about? It is not about proving whether you're saved. It is not written to evangelize the Gnostics. It is testing what claims to be fellowship. It's testing not conversion, but fellowship. The Gnostics are saying, the heretics, the false teachers, when we use the word Gnosticism, which is a, a cult where you think that salvation is by a theoretical knowledge. We sometimes use that word Gnostics. But um, the heretics, the false teachers, whatever you want to call them, they, they are saying God speaks to us. We, we, don't, we don't believe in, in Jesus as the Son of God come in the flesh, but God has spoken to us. We know we've got these revelations. We're having fellowship with God. You don't need to bother about sin. There's nothing wrong with sin. It's not, it's not illegal. He'll, say, he'll deal with that in 1 John 2. And uh, so these Gnostics are claiming fellowship. Here are people who, who do not believe in the gospel, but they're claiming to be having fellowship, and God reveals things and talks to them. And that confuses the Christians, because the Christians say, well, if God really does talk to them, well, well, we, we better listen then. So what is the proof, not of the proof of salvation, but the proof of fellowship? How can we test whether what we think is having fellowship with God, really is having fellowship. There are all sorts of people around, as, I, as I've been telling you, I've been reading a lot of the mystics over the last year, not only Christian mystics, but Hindus and Muslims. There are Muslims who say, God spoke to me. You know, of Sufism in Islam, it's a sort of subsection of Islam, the Sufis, they believe that God speaks to them. I read, a, I read an article in a newspaper in Qatar, in Doha, a man who, who man was a European, I think he was Spanish, and uh, he suddenly said, no, I've, God told me the Quran is true, and, he, and he's, a, he's a, an imam in Madrid or somewhere. God, God spoke to me, and I know the Quran's true. He had all sorts of weird guys saying, God speaks, God speaks to me, God told me this, God told me that. You get it in pagan religions, you get African, African paganism, where someone says, the God spoke to me. All sorts of people reckon that God speaks to them. And have you ever noticed that intellectuals sometimes abandon their intellectualism and become mystics? You get these guys who are philosophers. I think of a, a guy, I remember what his name is, who was the professor of philosophy at Reading University for years and years and years, a famous atheist. I used to have to read his books when I was at Theological College 40 years ago. A famous atheist. And then suddenly, after all these years, now he's 80, he suddenly declared, oh, I think there is a God after all. And you get certain people who, who are highly intellectual, and then one day they throw it all up, and they just think, no, no, God just speaks to me. And they throw up all of their intellectual ability. Aldous Huxley, do you know the story of the Huxley family? Aldous Huxley, he's a sort of atheist and intellectual all of his life, and one day he throws it all up and becomes a Buddhist. Why, why, does, why does a man spend 50 years of his life being an atheist and then when he's old he becomes a Buddhist? And I'll tell you why. It's because his intellectualism doesn't work. He tries to find the answers by intellect. He's, maybe he's a professor of philosophy. Maybe he's a famous intellectual. And he studies and he uses his mind and, and he really, his hope is of, is of understanding our world. And he goes on doing it for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And after, after years... He's still in a terrible situation. His life's getting narrower and narrower. He's going to die. He knows he's going to die. He's got no hope. And suddenly he throws it all up and tries to just have direct experience of, of the mysterious or the occult. A man who's been an atheist maybe for, for 40 years suddenly throws it all up and he becomes a mystic. There's many examples of that. We could discuss it. Why did Tony Blair become a Catholic the day after he finished being Prime Minister? I think I know. It's because when you're looking for an answer and you can't find one, you turn to the most authoritative people around. And the most authoritative people around in his circle is the Catholic Church. Julia Roberts, Eat, Love, Pray. You know, you know these films? Have you seen, what was it called, Eat, Love, Pray? Julia Roberts, have you seen that film? A woman abandons her husband, walks off, goes to India, Finds an Indian lover. That's the, that's the story. And Julia Roberts herself seemed to be going that way. Why do people suddenly throw up Western ideas and they throw up the gospel and they start going to Eastern religions or they, they turn to this or they turn to that? The reason why they do it is because their intellectualism and their seeking doesn't work. 
So they throw it all up and they, they move from A to Z. They go from one extreme to the other because the previous one didn't work. They become a Catholic because that's got authority. Or they turn to Eastern religions because Western, Western cultures let them down. And suddenly they make some dramatic move and they go from A to Z in one step. All sorts of weird guys reckon that, that out there somewhere some voice speaks to them. And this was what was happening in Ephesus, these false teachers came in saying, well, God speaks to us, we've got these revelations, and the, 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 the spirit world has told us that Jesus is not the same as the Christ, that matter is evil, only spirit is good. And all this, all this sort of junk starts coming into Ephesus. And it confuses the Christians. It's very popular. It's the dominant philosophy. So, so the Christians are very distressed with it. John writes, so as to be able to show us the way to know whether, whether what we think is fellowship with God really is fellowship with God. And the answer is that if we really are having fellowship with God, it will have a moral impact upon us. It will make us to be holy. It will make us to keep his commandments. We're not being saved by keeping his commandments, but uh, we're proving that what is happening to us really is from God. By this we know that we have known him. You, you, you must get the tenses right. By this we know, present tense in Greek, that we have known him, past, past tense in Greek, if we keep his commandments. You have an experience of God, and it leads you to obedience to Jesus. You can know that comes from God. The devil doesn't lead you to obedience to Jesus. False gospels don't lead you to obedience to Jesus. False gospels won't, won't make you love Christians John says, we know that we have known him because we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We've come to really enjoy being with Christians. We'd rather be in church than, than be with the most important person in the uni, in, in, on the planet. We love being with the people of God. We love Christians. We love, we love purity and righteousness and fellowship with Jesus. We love scripture. We love the truth. We, it's, it's had an impact upon our life. If that's happening to you, ah, oh, you've known God. That's the proof that you really have known God. When you really do know the Lord, it leads you into obedient fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what John's trying to do. He's not telling you how to prove whether you're saved. He's not telling Gnostics how to get saved. He's telling you how to prove and know that you really are having fellowship with the Lord. And that's why I, I choose to focus upon it. Because that's the way we work out our salvation. The, great, the greatest ingredient, the greatest part of, of uh, working out salvation is to do what we do in fellowship with the Lord. If you do, are not having fellowship with God, with the Father and with the Son, and incidentally notice those are two things, not one. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. There is a distinct fellowship with the Father and with the Son. There's a fellowship with the Father, there's a fellowship with Jesus, and they are distinct, and John keeps them distinct. Just as John 14 says, believe in God, believe also in me. There's a distinct faith in the Father and in the Son. And there's distinct fellowship with the Father and with the Son. You can have fellowship with God the Father, you can have fellowship with God the Son. And that may make you, might make you ask the question, in that case, do we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Why doesn't John say we have fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son and fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Why does he not mention the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is you don't so much have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, you more have fellowship by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who's giving you the fellowship with the Father. It is the Holy Spirit who's giving you fellowship with the Son. The Holy Spirit leads you into fellowship. The love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the one who's leading you into knowing the love of God, the one who's leading you into knowing the grace of Jesus, the one who's giving you that fellowship is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does not glorify himself. Remember, John says, Jesus says, when he comes, he'll, 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 not, he'll not glorify himself. He takes the things that are, that are mine and he declares them unto you. The Holy Spirit does not, does not draw attention to himself. He draws attention to Jesus. People who are too obsessed by the Holy Spirit probably don't know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not glorify himself. He glorifies Jesus. Have you ever picked up a Pentecostal hymn book? 
pick up a Pentecostal hymn book, you'll find, and they're, they're great people of the Holy Spirit, but pick up, pick up a Pentecostal hymn book, you'll find there's more songs about Jesus than about the Holy Spirit. And that's just the way it should be. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. He doesn't get you to sing about the Holy Spirit, he gets you to sing about Jesus. Then he puts him thirsty, let him come to me, he says, let him come to Jesus. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, this he said of the Spirit. When you come to the Lord Jesus, you experience the Spirit. And the Spirit sends you back to Jesus again. The Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus. So you don't sort of hunger for a kind of separate fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, and it's the Holy Spirit who's back behind it giving you that fellowship. You're conscious of the Holy Spirit, but he's not giving you fellowship with himself. He's giving you fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Well, I'm wondering whether you're following me, but uh, that's the way it is. So that's what 1 John is all about. So let me make a start then on this great passage, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to chapter 2, verse 2, where John is telling us how to have fellowship with the Lord. John, John goes forward in, para, in short paragraphs, and it's not so logical. John is not Paul. When you read Paul, you'll find that Paul argues in a logical manner. He'll lay something down, He'll give you this reason and that reason and this reason and this reason, and he'll say, so then, therefore, what should we say then? If God is for us, then he'll, he'll press the conclusions upon us. Paul will lay down a proposition, argue it, and come to great triumphant conclusions. That's Paul's way. He's logical. He's a highly intellectual person. He's the Apostle Paul, and he argues in a straight line as intellectual people normally do. But John is not, not like that. John is not an intellectual like the Apostle Paul, the Apostles are different and their, their personality shows itself. John was a fisherman, he was a, hung, he was a simple guy, and his style is not so much to argue logically as to, as to meditate and go round a topic and uh, he'll pick up this and go round it and this thought and this thought and this thought, and then he'll come back to it again. John's, John's style is not to argue in a straight line, but to, to wander around a subject. And you'll find, if you read 1 John, that there are various subjects that he comes back to three times. He'll say something about love and about this and about that. Then he'll come back to love again. And then he'll say something about this again. He's wandering around the subject, covering some topics two or three times. His style is not logical. His style is meditative, wandering around a thing, pondering it, and then moving on, not saying everything saying a bit more about this, and then coming back to something else again. His style is, is more spiral or circular and meditative. It's not arguing in a straight line. So John is just pondering these various things and sharing them with his friends. In the first paragraph, 1 John 1, 1 to, 1 to 4, he's telling us why he's writing. <coughs> and he's telling us that you must believe in the incarnation. You must believe that that which was from the beginning, the person of the Son of God, actually became a man. That which was from the beginning, he's referring to Jesus as the everlasting Son of God, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and we've touched him with our hands. And then he picks up the sentence again in, in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship. The first thing that needs to happen if you're to have fellowship with God is you must believe in the gospel. You must believe that the Son of God took flesh. You, you're never going to have fellowship with God if you just believe in Greek philosophy or you're trying to be a mystic or you're trying to get some voice coming to you from the, from the outer space somewhere. No, no, you must believe in the facts of history. You must believe that the Son of God took flesh, and these apostles saw him and heard him and witnessed him. He died upon the cross. He was raised from the dead. If you don't believe those things, you will never come into fellowship with God. So he begins there. He begins by saying, look, this, this son of God took flesh, and we heard him and saw him and touched him as a man. And he's preaching that that will bring you into fellowship. Our fellowship is, is with him. And you can join it. If you listen to our message, you can have fellowship with us. And we're having fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So the first paragraph is making the point that you must believe in the gospel. You're never going to have fellowship with God if you won't believe in the basic facts of the gospel. But then in the next paragraph, which is the main one that I want to focus on, 
He tells us how to have fellowship. And uh, I'm, I'm conscious of time. I'm sort of ending at a slightly awkward point, but that's all right. We'll, we'll survive. The first thing you need to know if you're to have fellowship with God is the one that you are having fellowship with. And so it begins there. This is the message that we heard from him, Jesus, and we proclaim it to you. This is the message that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If you are to have fellowship with God, the first thing you need to, as it were, keep in mind is the holiness and the purity of the God that you are seeking to have fellowship with. If, if you want fellowship with anybody, you better, better take notice of what he likes and what he doesn't like. You want to be friends with your Hindu neighbor and you take him out for lunch, you better not go to Wimpy's and give him a beef burger. You know, Indians don't like beef. You, you, you better, if you're trying to be friendly with anybody, you better take notice of their likes and their dislikes, things that they don't want to do and they do want to do. The same is true of God. You, you, you want to be friendly with God. You want God to be your friend. You want to have fellowship. You want to feel God. You want to be conscious of his presence. Well, the first thing you need to know is what this God is like. When, you, when you're wanting to be friendly with anybody, you, you better take notice of their likes and their dislikes and their character because, because certain things will offend them and you better take notice of certain things if you want to be friendly with somebody. And you do that with God. So the first thing you need to know is God is light. What does it mean? It means he's holy. It means he tells the truth. I think it means three things. It means he's holy. It means he tells the truth. And I would also think it means he's happy. We, we use light in those ways. Light, it, we use light as a symbol of purity. Light is clean. Light is pure. You can't mix light with darkness, can you? You're in a dark room and you switch on a, tor a torch. You don't get a sort of grey fog. You get the light shining in the darkness. You don't get a mixture of the light and the darkness. Light, light won't mix with darkness. You, you don't get a grey fog or something which is sort of just a, a dim haze. You get the light shining in the darkness. It won't mix with the darkness. It dispels the dark. It gets rid of the darkness. It won't mix with it. The very essence of light is you can't mix it with darkness. And so John says, God is light, he's pure, he's clean, he's righteous, he's holy. You cannot mix any, any sin or wickedness with him. In him he, he is light and in him is no darkness at all. You can never get God to be a little bit sinful. Have you ever tried that? Some people would try it. You know, Lord, I, I wouldn't do this normally, but... Uh, Lord, I hope, I hope you'll let me do this just this once. You want God, as it were, to just sort of look nicely upon something which you know is a bit wicked. You're really asking God to have just a little bit of darkness in him for the moment and let you do something. But you know you can't do that with God. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. You'll never get God to be somehow compromising with a little bit of sin or allowing a little bit of something that ought not to be there. It's not like that. In him is no darkness at all. You can never get God to be unclean or impure or unholy or a little bit wicked. You can't get him to, to compromise and say, well, I'll, I'll just do this a little bit. Please, please, please let me just do this one thing. No, no, you can't do that with God. And if you're wanting fellowship with God... That's the first thing you'll find out. The first thing you'll find out is there's no way that God will compromise with anything that's wicked. You can't tempt God. Remember the Bible says God cannot be tempted. You, never, you can never change God. And so here you are wanting friendship and wanting fellowship with God. You want God to hear your prayers. You want God to give you a sense of his presence. You want to, God to bless you. You want the Holy Spirit to be working powerfully in your life and you're wanting God. Well, the biggest problem you've got, in a sense, is God himself, the very nature of God. You know that old hymn? Can I remember it? I don't know whether I can remember it. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be, that placed within his searching sight, 
How's it go? He looks upon him. I'd have to invent it a bit as I go along. He looks upon him with calm delight and can live and look on thee. The spirits that surround your throne may bear the burning bliss. The angels, maybe, that they, they can do it. The spirits that surround their throne may bear the burning bliss, but they have never, never known a fallen world like this. Oh, how can I, whose mind is dim, whose naked sphere is dark, before the ineffable appear? How can I approach God? He's the, he's the everlasting light. The angels can do it. The, the angels might be able to do it, but how can I do it? And then he goes on, there is a way, there is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering, a sacrifice for sin, an offering and a sacrifice of Holy Spirit's energies. These, he goes on to say, these lead us to God. But, but, but as you are, how, how, can, how can you approach the, the everlasting, the eternal light? How pure the soul must be that placed within thy searching sight can shrink not but with calm delight can live and look on thee. How, how can you do it? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. These, these pagan philosophers came into, into effort so they weren't bothered about love. They weren't bothered about sin or obedience. Is, is, this, is this fellowship with God? You read these Gnostics, you read Plato, were they, were they bothered about God? Most of their lives were filthy. These, 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 these philosophers, have you ever read their lives? Aldous Huxley, these mystics, have you ever read about them? They, they commit suicide a lot. The philosophers committed suicide more than anybody else did. It's the, it's the clever guys, the rich guys, these people that reckon they know God. They're the ones who commit suicide the most. They, they come to disillusion. They, they end up disillusioned. And they, you, you, know the, you know the last book that H.G. Wells ever wrote. H.G. Wells, who spent all of his life ridiculing the Christian gospel. And then finally he writes his last book, Mind at the End of Its Tether. And he's totally and utterly disillusioned. These people who think they can seek God when they they don't know what God is like. They've not seen who he is. How can can the sinner, how can someone like you and me approach God? The first thing you need to know is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. How can you ever get near him? How can can you know him? Oh, we'll come back to work it out. I'll stop. As I say, I'm stopping at an awkward point, but it's all right. But I can tell you what the answer is. The answer is Jesus. The only way in which you can ever get to God is that Jesus must bear your sins in his body on the tree. You come in any other way, you'll never get anywhere near God. I am the way, said Jesus. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. No one can get anywhere near God except by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus doesn't deal with the problem of sin, if Jesus doesn't come and deal with sin and bear the punishment of sin, you've got a kind of barrier. You can't get through to God because of your sin, your wickedness. And and we're all wicked. We, we We may be... Varying in, our, in the way in which you show our wickedness. Some are, some are more nasty than others. Some are nice sinners. Some are horrible sinners. But we're all sinners. You can be a nice sinner, but you're still a sinner when you stand before God. You can be nice to your next door neighbor, but you haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. You don't love people as much as you love yourself. We're all sinners in the presence of God. You, you, can, you can be all right in the presence of your next door neighbor, but when you're in the presence of God, are you clean enough and pure enough and righteousness to stand before a holy God? No, you're not. There is a way. There's only one way. An offering and a sacrifice. A Holy Spirit's energies. An advocate with God. That's the only way you can come to deal with God. And John will go on to say that. First thing we need to know if you want fellowship is that you can only get anywhere near God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you tell us about it. The blood of Jesus Christ goes on cleansing from all sin. We'll come back to that in the next session. The only way you can get close to God and work out this salvation and live in daily fellowship and contact and prayerfulness and enjoyment of the very presence of God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you upon the cross and his blood gives you eternal redemption. And his blood, as we'll come back to it, his blood will give you daily cleansing. Every single day of your life, the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you so that you can come into the presence of God and you can have fellowship with him.
we'll go on to work it out. But you begin there. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And that being true, the only way you can ever get close to him is through the blood, the death upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stop there for the moment. Let's pray as we bring the morning to an end. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we may never, we pray that we may never, never forget these elementary things, that we stand before you by the blood of Jesus. May we never look to ourselves. May we never feel how good we are. Deliver us from Phariseeism. Deliver us from trying to stand before you because of how good we are. Deliver us from, from feeling rejected because we're not good enough or accepted because we feel we're okay. Teach us to live daily upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Teach us to come daily, regularly, persistently to you and know who you are and confess our sins and find fellowship with you. Teach us how to do it, even, even this day. Teach us how to walk in fellowship with you every day of our lives by means of the blood of Jesus Christ. Teach us how to do it. Teach us today. Be with us all day long. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you.